On the next Probably True Solar Stories, we're bringing together our previously published Solar Dragon story, The Red Knight and the Dawn of the Solar Dragon. It's the same Season 2 story, but instead of three 20-minute episodes, we're telling this dragon tale in a single hour-long version. Some people like the longer audio novella format without any cliffhangers, so this one-hour episode is for you. If you were expecting a brand new Season 3 episode, I'm sorry. The Solar Muses are still working on those new Solar Stories. If you're in the solar industry and going to the RE Plus conference in Las Vegas, I'll be debuting a live reading of a new Solar Story there. Eventually, that live reading will be published here on the podcast. For now, I hope you'll enjoy this long modern fairy tale. If this story is only entertaining, good. If the energy conflicts here sound familiar, even better. As always, this episode's show notes separate the energy facts from the energy fiction. That's all you need to know, except that this dragon story is a little bloody. There will be blood and burnt flesh. So, fair warning. Okay, here we go. The Red Knight and the Dawn of the Solar Dragon Written and read by Tor Solarfred Valenza Hello, I am Zeno and I have been asked by King Maxwell II of Luxenshire to record the story of how and why Esther the Dragon and Gorin the Red Knight fought the Second Dragon War. If you don't know me, then you're probably living in a time and place where dragons are a part of myth and sexy television shows. But mark me, dragons are very real in my time and kingdom. They're as common as bears. Or rather, they used to be common. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The last battle between Esther the Dragon and Gorn the Red Knight has been reported in the kingdom media and the memes all over energy twitterdom. But few know how it really started, and how it led to the Second Dragon War, and the loss of many human and dragon lives. The First Dragon War was largely a misunderstanding. Five hundred years ago, dragons and humans fought about land rights, caves, and dragons poaching animals from human farms. It wasn't their fault. Dragons didn't understand about the value of cow, pig, and sheep farming, or about the ownership of any animal. Dragons were like wild wolves. If a dragon wanted meat, they saw their prey and hunted it down. Or in the dragon's case, they flew, they roasted their prey on the field until the animal's hide was burned off, then they cooked it to medium to about medium rare. Delicious. Finally, they took their roasted prey back to the family nest and dinner table. How different was that from any hunter-gatherer? In short, ranches and farms were like free open-air dragon cafeterias. It was only when the ancient dragon speech therapists taught dragons how to communicate that the dragons finally understood that attacking a ranch was the same as attacking their caves and nests and stealing their eggs. Once dragons understood that, they promised not to hunt near cities or the occasional human. And so, the First Dragon War ended. 
Over a millennia, they began to interact more with humans, and they became a regular part of stories and our culture. Hundreds of years later, when dragons found out that they could be useful for power plants, a new dragon-human era began. As I said, my name is Zeno, and I am a natural wizard. Depending on your beliefs, some might call me a scientist. But tomato, tomato, call me what you like. Natural wizard suits me. As a natural wizard, the world is my laboratory. But you have to call someplace home. My home was an ancient dragon cave near the Luxenshired Light Palace. I personally answered to the old King Maxwell I, who knew we had to solve the dragon power problem. I know it's difficult to imagine today with everything running on solar power and batteries, but in those early energy days, the entire kingdom was powered by great fire-breathing dragons. It worked like this. Dragon breath heated large boiler kettles filled with water. The boilers created steam, which then turned a turbine generator. Transmission lines went from dragon power boiler caves to local homes, and like energy magic, instead of candles and whale oil, we had central power for light bulbs. Other inventions soon followed. Refrigerators, blenders, and air conditioners. Huzzah! Of course, dragon power was crude, but not cruel. Dragons wanted to help humans. I have known many dragons, and they were all very intelligent. They liked being useful and having a steady job. Before power stations, they were a carnival trick or an accidental fire hazard. As for pay, like humans, dragons have always been attracted to gold, although they never bought anything. Still, they understood that their thermal abilities were valuable. They were a job, and dragons demanded payment like any job. And that payment became more and more expensive. Aside from the expense, there were other reasons why dragon power had to be replaced by an alternative. As intelligent beings, dragons had opinions and emotions. As a rule, Energy wizards like myself could never talk to a dragon about religion, politics, wrestling, or Game of Thrones. But even without those topics, they could be moody. If a married dragon pair had a fight, or a dragon woke up on the wrong side of the cave, their fires might abruptly turn off, causing a grid blackout. With some soothing words, perhaps feeding them some chocolate-covered aardvarks, their favorite treat, we could coax their throats to glow warm again and come online. But clearly, this dynamic was unreliable for keeping the kingdom's lights on. The other problem was that large dragons were not only moody, but scarce. When you found one willing and able to boil an energy kettle to 212 to 600 degrees Fahrenheit, they had to be centralized and housed in regional dragon power caves. In case of a dragon out or the need for extra power during the summer, King Maxwell had to pay extra gold to Pika dragons. Pika dragons were on 24-7 standby in nearby backup caves. They slept most of the time, but dragons don't like being confined, 
so they demanded even more gold than base power dragons. Then, when dragons joined the Elf Union, they asked for more gold and benefits. They wanted chocolate-covered aardvarks once a week, thirty-minute coffee breaks thrice a day, a television with all the streaming services built in, and other creature comfort demands. The king gave them everything they asked for. But the dragons could still be grumpy when you woke them up, or interrupted Pico dragons from watching their dragon novella soap operas. I used to manage Pico dragons, and believe me, it was dangerous work. And that's why King Maxwell turned to me in my energy wizard laboratory. He wanted me to invent a new kind of energy that would not rely on dragons or dragon thermal fire. Esther was our dedicated laboratory energy dragon. She used to be a Pika dragon, so she was used to being used intermittently. She loved her work, always heating my boiler kettle as needed. She also knew that her dragon power was in competition with our experiments, with fossil gas, solar, and wind. But she welcomed the competition. We paid her a competitive gold salary, and she wasn't greedy. Esther had everything she needed, so she often gave gold away to poor humans. She was a good dragon. Likewise, before becoming the Red Knight, Goran was a good apprentice and a brilliant engineer. You've heard the stories, so you may doubt that, but I assure you that Goran wanted to find an alternative to dragon energy as much as I did. Goran was young. He grew up with dragon energy, and he marveled at the dragon's power. But with the kingdom's ever-increasing energy needs, he knew we could not rely on dragon energy forever. One viral dragon plague, and the entire kingdom would be plunged into darkness. At first, Esther and Goran had a collegial relationship. Esther knew Goran wanted to make her obsolete, but she also knew that dragons had existed for thousands of years before power plants were invented. If our laboratory was successful, Esther expected that she and her brothers and sisters would go back to their caves and coves, hunt wild animals, keep up with her soaps, lay eggs, and fly. In fact, Esther said that she wanted to start Dragon Airlines after energy dragons were retired. It was a vague idea. Something about taking people into low orbit for a few minutes. But as you know, that venture never happened. As to how Goran became the Red Knight, I remember the day well. Goran had created a blueprint for replacing dragons by burning abundant elements. That, he reasoned, would keep our current pressure kettle steam turbine technology. Instead of fire dragon breath, power plants would heat water by burning fuel from trees, coal, oil, and gas. That's a daft plan, Goran, said Esther. The kingdom will run out of all those things one day. Besides, people like trees. Even a dragon likes the shade under a tree or to perch on a strong branch. And to get the coal, you'll have to cut down those trees, dig, then transport them to the power plants, then burn it. That's a massive roundabout effort to blend a smoothie and run your air conditioner if you ask me. Valid points, Esther. But this design will work now said Goran. This burning method will create mining jobs, tree-cutting jobs, transport jobs, and pollution-control jobs. 
these abundant elements lay right before us today. All we have to do is dig them up, transfer them to the caves, build my new boiler design, and then light a match. It's nearly the same turbine system as we have today, just different fuels. I don't see why we should look further. Aye, it'll work all too well, Gorin. You're being short-sighted, said Esther. Eventually you'll burn it all. And with the way the kingdom's electricity demand is growing, it won't last. Let's not settle for a bad solution that's just good enough. We dragons can be temperamental, I know. But we'll keep the lights on until the humans find the right answer. Not the first answer. Yes, we'll eventually find the right answer, agreed Gorn. I believe in Zeno's solar power solution. I also like wind towers. But the sun and wind are intermittent. We'll need batteries, too. That could take years to invent. Maybe decades. Is your solar solution ready now, Zeno? My solar panel solution was not ready then, but I was very close. I had learned to harness the photovoltaic effect. When sunlight shines on the semiconductor material, it excites electrons and creates a flow of electricity into a direct current. But Gorin had a point. It was an incomplete solution, and I said so that very day. Yes, Gorin, you're right. We'll need new battery technology, too. But as you know, Petrov is working on a lithium-ion phosphate battery solution that seems promising. I'm also working on a tandem perovskite solar technology. But it will take time. However, I agree with Esther. Let's not hastily adopt a technology that will impact the air and climate of the kingdom. Gorin didn't respond at first. He thought carefully about his next words. Then he said, With all due respect, Zeno, carbon dioxide is healthy and used by plants every day. Coal, gas, and oil are abundant resources and ready to be harnessed. The gods gave us these elements to be used, not left in the ground. Can't you see that? I could see that Gorin was passionate and proud of his solution. But I could also see that Esther was looking at Gorin, studying him, smelling him, hearing the subtle tones in his voice. You're in the pockets of the king and the landowner barons, Gorin. Don't tell me you're not. Standing twenty feet in the air, Esther's neck lowered to six feet and pointed down at a forty-five degree angle at Gorin. This position was an aggressive dragon posture. And thank the gods, Gorin knew it. I won't lie, said Gorin. My father is a miner. My aunt owns land with large deposits of gas and oil under her acres. Perhaps most importantly, I've just learned that King Maxwell's land surveyors have found mountains of coal throughout the realm. His highness thought it was a useless mineral. Now he knows that it's worth something. Something that can be burned. Something that can provide energy. Something that can be taxed. Aye, but the king can't tax the sun's energy. Can he, Gorin? And he can't tax the wind blowing. And if anyone can install solar panels and batteries, then everyone would have free electricity. Free energy is too expensive for the king, isn't it, Gorin? Gorin didn't say anything for a moment. Conspiracy theories, said Gorin. The king supports solar and wind just as much as my thermal solutions. They're just not ready yet. 
You're lying, Gorin. I can tell. You know dragons do hate lying. Gorin did know. Everyone knew. Dragons were natural lie detectors, so they never lied to each other. And when humans lied straight to their faces, it was an insult. It was like saying that the truth was irrelevant. I'll ask you again. Does the king support Solar? Esther asked. Yes, said Gorin, as soon as the technology is mature. I see. And does the king support wind energy? Yes, yes, of course. In due time. Esther's nostrils flared. A snake of smoke began to seep out. Esther, I said, please, we're colleagues. You know he's lying. Let him lie. It's our work that's important. I can forgive a human lying once to my face, Zeno, but not twice. Fire burst from Esther's dragon maw. Like a flaming arrow, the firebolt hit Gorn in the chest, and his personal fire shield immediately burst into a blue flame and disintegrated into glowing shards. I threw a dragon fire blanket around Gorn's torso, but it was too late. His entire chest and back sloughed off and fell to his feet, leaving red, raw flesh from his waist to his neck. He was fortunate not to have lost the skin on his head, but Esther had aimed precisely. I saved Gorn's life with the fire blanket and applied dragon burn liniment as quickly as I could. But his skin was permanently raw, scarred, and damaged. And that is how Gorin became known as the Red Knight. As Gorin lay in pain before her, Esther didn't apologize. She'd given him a warning. Besides, Everyone knew never to lie to the face of a dragon. It was like sticking your head into a lion's mouth or jumping off a building without a parachute. If you were sane, you just didn't do it. Maybe it was Gorin's pride, or perhaps it was his loyalty to the king that made him lie. He never said why. In any case, that was the beginning of Gorin's quest to extinguish all the dragons in the known kingdom. It was also the beginning of my hastening the invention of a solar photovoltaic solution that would replace Dragonfire before Gorin could implement his thermal solution. Gorin went to the hospital, but he never came back to the laboratory, not as an engineer anyway. After months of healing, he went straight for the hospital to King Maxwell's throne room. Young Prince Maxwell was witness to their conversation. He tells us that Gorin showed the king his fossil blueprints and assured the king that every dragon power plant could be upgraded to burn coal, oil, gas, and wood. All the king had to do was grant him permission to dig, drill, and burn what the gods had provided. King Maxwell agreed. Seeing Gorin's red skin, he said, I see your sacrifice, Gorin. For this, I knight you, Gorin the Red Knight. You will be my energy champion. Along with your title, I bestow upon you one thousand acres of Luxonshire forest. My surveyors tell me that the forest is filled with buried coal and oil. Retrieve this buried energy, Gorin. I grant you the mineral rights to sell this fuel to our kingdom's future upgraded power plants. 
To protect your assets and our tax revenues, the kingdom will assess some non-bypassable charges and a 20% utility surcharge. The rest of your fuel-burning profits are yours. Thank you, my king. Though stretching his skin was agonizing, Gorn bowed his red neck and bent one knee as far as he could. After being knighted by the king, Gorn winced and looked up at King Maxwell. And the dragons? asked Gorn. If your solution is true, then the dragons have no purpose to us. You may extinguish them, said King Maxwell. But be quick and be discreet. I will, my king, said Gorn. Now that the Red Knight had invented a technology for replacing energy dragons, the next task was to quietly replace those dragons. As mentioned, dragons were generally tame, but they were not dumb. With their innate lie detection, they couldn't be persuaded to leave their caves on false pretense. You couldn't say, you're fired either. Oftentimes, we'd built boiler kettles in the dragon's home cave, so they'd have nowhere to go and would more likely put fire to the messenger. More troubling was dealing with Belt. The dragons had joined the Brotherhood of Elvish Laborers and Trolls, or Belt Union. The current contract had a 20-year term with 12 years remaining. King Maxwell had insisted on the long-term contracts so that the kingdom's accounting wizards could set utility rates based on the levelized cost of dragons, otherwise known as the LCOD. If Gorn went into a cave and said, you're fired to any Union energy dragon, that dragon would cite the 20-year Union contract and ask about cause. Then an elf union captain would be called, and if there weren't cause as defined by section 3b paragraph 7, the elves would call for a general dragon strike. Not only would there be a blackout, but the elves and trolls would also go on strike, shutting down the kingdom's breweries, distilleries, and troll replies on social media. Worse, once the dragons learned that old King Maxwell had broken their 20-year contract without cause, that would be a lie. Not only would there be an immediate kingdom-wide blackout, it would cause another dragon war. For these reasons, King Maxwell authorized the dragons to be extinguished quickly and quietly. But how? Goran knew that the attack had to be a surprising head-on assault with armor that could withstand dragon fire. After the dragon was slain, they could even burn their tough, scaly corpse and the upgraded energy boilers. The Belt Union and other dragons would assume that the deceased dragon had flown away on vacation or just got pissed off and left. Rare, but plausible. As for a quick head-on attack, it was impossible with conventional weapons and armor. A knight wearing the king's normal steel armor would face a dragon flame that would bake and boil the knight like a sack of meat in an iron sous-vide. Targeted, heated dragon breath would also melt a steel shield as quickly as ice cream on a hot tar road. What the Red Knight needed was some kind of fire-resistant metal. Goran tried to ask me if I knew of such metal, but I told him I could not think of one, though really I could. It's easy to lie to a human. Had Esther asked me the same question, 
I would have told her that only Millennium could, for a short time, reflect a burst of dragonfire. It also made an excellent arrowhead for piercing through the throats of dragons. I don't know how Goran found the right answer. A dragon alchemist would have known why Goran had asked the question, and he also would have known the value of the right answer. I do wonder if Gorn had paid the alchemist his price, or killed him right after he learned about Millennium. In any case, Millennium was a very rare earth material, but with the king's credit card at his disposal, it was easy for the Red Knight to source and craft five hundred suits of Millennium armor and ten thousand Millennium arrowheads and an equal number of harpoons. Ironically, the dragons unknowingly provided the intense thermal heat that crafted the Millennium Shields and the weapons that would soon wage war against them. With the Millennium Arsenal warehoused in the Light Palace, Goran chose his Red Knight Brigade from convicted murderers who had already been sentenced to death. Fighting dragons was like a death sentence, but Goran promised them full pardons and freedom if they survived. You have to remember that millennium was a new material. In theory, it could deflect extremely high temperatures, but no one knew its limits. Dragon breath could be fired at temperatures ranging from 100 degrees Fahrenheit to a white-hot and disintegrating 10,000 degrees. Thus, the shields and arrows needed to be tested. Goran knew better than to test his millennium on me and Esther. We were well guarded not just by my inventions, but also the location of our dragon cave. It was like a castle on a mountain. To attack us, the Red Knight Brigade would have to climb four thousand stairs and surely be boiled in Esther's dragon fire after the first hundred steps. Instead, Goran chose to attack Alex Therma Dragon, King Maxwell's dedicated energy dragon for the Luxenshire Light Palace. A palace dragon engineer later told me about the details of the attack. It's painful for me to imagine what he described. I'd known Alex since he was a hatchling. He grew up to be huge. One small burp from Alex's firebox could boil water in less than a second. His twin brother Adam served as the king's pika dragon and was even larger. Being one of only two palace dragons made Alex feel very proud and, I suppose, too secure. On one of Alex's last coffee breaks, we met to catch up. He'd grown to the size of a humpback whale. Seeing his size, I called him fat and lazy. This was an honest judgment, not a lie, and he took it well. He said, I may be fat, but I'm not lazy, tiny Zeno. I work as directed. Has the king ever had a blackout in this last year? Nope because when King Maxwell needs fire for energy, he relies on Alex the Great Fat and Lazy Dragon. Ha, ha, ha. We laughed together, and I don't know if Alex ever laughed again. I'm sure Alex heard the train arrive and break outside the dragon power cave. Dragons can hear like bats. Make a little noise and the sound wave will reveal the object's shape and size. So he must have heard Gorn and the clanking footsteps of the Red Knight Brigade. And when they came closer, he must have seen them too. But why didn't he shoot his whitest flame? That I can't understand. The only explanation I can think of was that Alex didn't understand that he was being betrayed. 
It was that moment of confusion and disappointment that must have been his undoing. I'm told that ten millennium crossbow arrows and a harpoon pierced Alex's throat. After that, if he did cast a flame, it sprung out of his wounded throat like a flaming necklace. After Alex was dead, Gorin turned to Adam, King Maxwell's backup Pika dragon, and Alex's twin brother. I'm told he was sleeping in the cave, and I'm glad it was fast. If he'd woken up to learn of King Maxwell's betrayal and sensed his twin's corpse, he would have not died in peace. Without dragons, the Light Palace went dark that night. But the king knew it would happen. In half a night, Gorin had jerry-rigged his upgrades into the kettle boiler and loaded it with clear-cut timber for burning. Hours later, he experimented with oil, coal, and gas. The palace light stayed on, and Gorin instantly knew that he could now replace every energy dragon in the kingdom by digging, drilling, burning, and by the murder of dragons. As for the bodies of Alex and Adam, they also proved to be energy fuel. They were difficult to alight and didn't burn efficiently, but packed with enough red-hot coal, they eventually turned to ashes. Having solved all of his bottlenecks, Gorin the Red Knight and his brigade of murderers began to replace dragons throughout the kingdom's grid. Power plant by power plant, Gorin repeated his murderous dragon upgrades after dark. Within a fortnight, half of the energy dragons had been replaced. It was only when the skies began to be grey with the smoke of burning timber, coal, and oil that people and dragons began to wonder about the new stench and colour of the kingdom's air. No one had ever seen energy exhaust air before. Was it always grey? The surviving dragons knew what had changed before the humans. They not only smelled the burning fuel, they smelled the flesh of burnt dragons. Like Alex, some didn't want to believe the smell came from humans betraying them. Perhaps there'd been a dragon fight. That often caused fire wounds and dragon flesh. Those optimists died quickly. For those dragons who knew the betrayal was real, they came out of their caves and left the dragon energy plants, destabilizing the grid and causing kingdom-wide darkness. As for their Belt Union brothers and sisters, Gorin and his Red Knight Brigade confronted their leaders. They said that if they could slay dragons, imagine what they could do to elves and trolls. Besides, if everyone could one day install solar panels on their roofs and get free energy from the sun, the Union would lose all of its coal mining and drilling jobs. Gorin also promised that if solar and batteries ever did mature, that the king would pass decrees that would maintain their energy monopolies and prioritize large-scale solar. That would maintain the Belt Union's hold on energy labor. Also, the elves and the trolls reasoned that dragons were only animals. And so, the elves and trolls stood down, and they did not go on strike. As for Esther, she quickly sensed the culling and knew that it had to do with the Red Knight, but she didn't know if I was involved. Zeno, what have you done? she asked after smelling the air's singed dragon skin. It was a gentle question, perhaps disappointment more than accusation. I haven't done anything, Esther. She knew it was true. 
I'd never lied to her or any dragon in my entire life. Esther nodded, accepting my answer. Gordon has come for his revenge, she said. I can smell the air. It's dirty and filled with the burnings from earth and dragon flesh. I don't understand. The king said that Gorn was building coal-powered railroads, I said. Dragons were never a good fit for railroad steam engines. They were too large, preferred to fly, and they often got carsick. Gorn was a natural scientist and engineer, so I thought this new railroad career was reasonable. I couldn't conceive that he or King Maxwell would move forward on his fossil fuel energy plants without letting me know. Esther remained patient with my gullibility. Gorin is not building passenger railways, Zeno. He's been quietly replacing dragons by stripping the earth and burning natural fuel so that you humans can have your lights and coffee makers and video screens. A daft plan, but one with great royal profits, I expect. The moment she explained it, I knew it was true. Dragons never lie, even to themselves. I'm sorry, Esther, I said. In the two years that Gorn had implemented his fossil energy upgrade plan, I had made great progress with my solar cell technology, and Petrov was close to perfecting his lithium-iron phosphate battery power as well. Wind power was also coming into its own. Another energy wizard was working with iron air formulas for long-duration and seasonal energy storage. Hydroelectric dams and geothermal power stations were also being piloted. In short, our energy wizards were close to making clean energy reliable and inexpensive, and King Maxwell knew it. After all, I reported to him every month. But clearly, he wanted to maintain his monopoly and control of electric power. Esther and I could hold a press conference and announce our clean energy progress, but we both knew it wouldn't stop Gorn and the King from their current plans. In fact, I expected that Gorn and his Red Knight Brigade would target the clean energy wizards after they'd extinguished the dragons. They would say that our experiments were failures or not quite ready to scale. I looked to Esther. I'm not a general, but I am a natural wizard. Ask me what you need to defend yourself, and I shall create it. I don't know yet, said Esther. I'm going to gather the dragon survivors, and then we're going to fight. I suppose you could invent a way to protect us, to fight back. I will, as fast as I can, I said. Esther looked back at her cave and then to me. One more thing, Zeno. If you can, protect my eggs. There are five of them. If you can keep them warm, they'll be pipping and hatching soon. But don't you crack them, Zeno. Let them come out naturally. I will, and I'll put a dragon fire blanket on them. That should keep them warm. If I don't come back, hide them, and help them live. You have my word, I said. As a dragon, she knew I meant it. Then Esther stood up fifty feet high and stretched her wings. They were as broad as the width of two railroad cars. She turned, and I watched her take four giant clawfoots forward to the cave's mouth. Her powerful back legs dug into the dragon landing pad, and there was a huge push of air as Esther flapped and leaped. Chunks of dragon landing pad concrete cracked and broke like eggshells as Esther's claws rose out of the cave's opening and disappeared. Dun. La, 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 la. 
That was the beginning of the Second Dragon War. In many ways it was a human civil war. There were those like me that wanted to protect the dragons and pay them for their natural abilities to heat boilers, and there were those who considered dragons a burden on the economy. On Luxentia News Tonight, Gordon and King Maxwell told the pundits that they would and could defeat the dragons. Asked if it was morally right to do so, the king replied that the gods had given humans a bottomless supply of fossil energy fuel. Moreover, previously fallow and unused land was being sold and put to use. Jobs were being created, and taxes were being collected for the good of all. Of course, a switch to solar, wind, and clean energy would also create hundreds of thousands of new jobs, but the king wouldn't say that on the program. Instead, in dramatic and scripted theater, Gordon stripped off his millennium armor and showed the audience his red chest. He said that energy dragons like Esther were dangerous. Not only were dragons greedy for gold, but they wanted to burn and injure. It was time for these energy thieves to be extinguished before they ruined our economy at best and broiled our children at worst. Following that appearance, King Maxwell distributed millennium arrows to every household. In a famous speech, he said that the only way to defeat a bad dragon was with a good human with a crossbow. The king then announced a bounty of one hundred gold pieces for every dragon head. Over the next month, the Red Knight continued to appear on cable shows, spreading lies that energy dragons were hungry for the tender flesh of children. They no longer wanted to be paid in gold and chocolate aardvark benefits. Instead, they wanted ten children per hour to continue heating the kettles. Many doubted this story, especially when the king forbade the networks from interviewing dragons or me. Everyone knew that dragons were harmless unless you lied to them. Feeling that they were losing public opinion, King Maxwell ordered Gorin to capture ten poor children playing in the forest. He caged them and set them on fire until their flesh was crisped. Then he wrapped their black skeleton corpses in white sheets and unfurled them at the light palace square. It was strange that people couldn't see through the lie. If the dragons had actually done this terrible deed, the children would have been eaten. Also, dragons generally like their prey to be medium rare. But the dragons couldn't defend themselves. They were still censored on television. And so everyone now believed Gorin and the king's lies. Parents took up millennium shields, arrows, and swords, and searched every cave for sleeping dragons. It was relatively easy to find them. Black rings of dragon soot usually marked the edges of their sleeping caverns. A good crossbow hunter could pierce their throat with three or four arrows. Then, as the dragon awoke in confusion, another human could use a millennium sword for decapitation. Hearing of these late-night attacks, the dragons flew to Makido, their ancient home cave that was hidden from all creatures except dragons. It was said that the first dragons emerged from Makido, and when dragons were in distress, they returned there for strength and community. Esther told me later that there were maybe one hundred dragons who had somehow escaped from Gorin and the bounty hunters. Some arrived at Makido wounded but alive, their throats boiling for revenge. After several days of recovery and planning, Esther addressed the survivors. We gave humans the power of light with our fire, said Esther. 
Now we bring them back to darkness. Esther had a simple plan. Destroy the power plants. Turn off the lights, no more dishwashers. And certainly, no more jacuzzis. La 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 la, ho ho, la 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 la. Goran had not moved the dragon power plant caves. He'd simply converted them for burning fossil fuels. The energy dragons knew their locations. They used to be their homes, after all. Besides, fossil fuels needed exhaust and cooling outlets. It was easy to find them. Just attack the towers, spewing black smoke. Esther and the dragons attacked the energy transport trains first, then the power plants. There were bloody losses on both sides. Dragons were felled by large millennium harpoons, but not before their white-hot breath ignited the coal and gas train supply lines. After the entire kingdom went dark, the dragons attacked the light palace. In darkness, they now had the advantage. A cool dragon breath blew out any light torches or wax candles lit with fire. Still, the king's guards had their millennium shields and weapons. And while millennium shields did work as protection, as anyone knows, if you heat a pot long enough, the soup inside boils. Ten dragons died entering the palace caves and searching for the king. On the other side, several hundred kingsmen were turned to ashes. Esther herself eventually found King Maxwell alone in a dungeon, trapped against a brick wall. He was still wearing his gold crown, and she charred him until the crown melted over his face and became a gold puddle on the ground. Without lights and without the king, Luxentia panicked. Finally, the dragons were able to tell the people the truth, that King Maxwell had slain the dragons for fossil fuel taxes and profits. Since everyone knew the dragons didn't lie, citizens turned against the Red Brigade and asked the dragons for forgiveness. Then they asked the dragons to turn their lights and refrigerators and televisions back on. Esther promised that she would, but only after she defeated Goran and his Red Knight Brigade. Goran was not as easy to find as King Maxwell. Without electricity, he and his Red Knight Brigade could hide in the dark and attack with millennium harpoons, crossbows, and swords. And so it happened. While patrolling the night, one of Goran's harpoons wounded Esther in the throat. Bleeding from her firebox, Esther returned to Zeno's laboratory to see her children before dying. Where are they? she asked me. I showed her. All five eggs had hatched and were surviving on the minced chocolate oddvarks that I used to feed to Esther as a treat and as a union requisite. Thank you, said Esther. She was in pain and spoke weakly. I don't know how you'll keep them safe after I'm gone, but please try. Let me see your wound, I said. Esther bowed and laid her neck on the laboratory's cold cave floor. Carefully, I examined Esther's firebox wound. There was no sense or kindness to lie to her. Your firebox is shredded, I said. Even if I were a better dragon wizard, I could not repair it, at least not organically. Esther's eyes blinked. What do you mean by not organically, Zeno? You have an invention. Don't you? 
Were dragons also mind-readers as well as truth-detectors? Perhaps they were. Yes, I said, but first you must be healed. Our pro-dragon brigades were on our side and protected our cave from Gorin. I tended to Esther for several days. She recovered her strength, but as I diagnosed, she could not produce fire from her throat. I wanted her to rest more before showing her my invention, but she was impatient and had very large teeth, so she could still injure me out of frustration. Finally, I showed her. It had never been tested before, but I knew her anatomy and her dimensions, so I wasn't surprised that it would be a good fit. But would it work? On the surface, it looked like Esther's torso and neck were covered in silver-armored scales. At the top of her neck and under her chin was a small tube with a hole. It may have looked like a dragon-skin shield, but it was much more. With the tube-like barrel under her chin, it was a solar-powered weapon. People call them laser cannons today. The energy from the sun would power the batteries under the solar cells, which would provide immense power to the laser cannon placed under Esther's chin. The cannon wasn't coming from her mouth like fire breath, but it was the closest I could do. I designed the trigger to be intuitive for a dragon. Like her old fire bursts, all Esther had to do was open her mouth and point at her target. Esther understood. After some adjustments on her neck, she tested the firing on a frozen chocolate-covered oddvok that I'd been slowly feeding to her little dragons. The laser not only punched a hole in the frozen oddvok, but made it explode with a pop. Esther caught some of the pieces and licked her tongue on the melted bits of chocolate oddvok flesh. I'd say it works, Esther said, smacking her lips. Now for Gorin and the Red Knight Brigade. I looked at Esther and hoped my invention would defend her but it didn't erase the rivers of dragon blood that Gorn and King Maxwell had spilled. I said, if I don't see you again, I want to apologize for all that you and your kind have lost. I'm sorry for our selfishness, for our short-sightedness, and for our lies to you and to ourselves. You have nothing to apologize for, Zeno. We dragons do not blame all humans, just the ones that knew better. Thank you for all you've done. If I don't win against Gorin, I know you'll do your best to protect my hatchlings. I will, I assured her. Esther ran out of the cave, her claws stumping on the ground. I followed her, worried that the extra weight of the shield would prevent flight. It did not. Esther leaped and flapped her wings. The air current that her wings created pushed me down flat against the cave floor. I stood up and left the laboratory cave, watching as she followed my charging instructions in the morning sun. She began to circle, absorbing the solar photovoltaic light. I'd infused the scales with melanium so Gorin's harpoons would be deflected from her breast and neck. Only Esther's wings were unprotected. The melanium would have inhibited flight. Besides, flying as high as she did, I thought it would be difficult for the harpoons to reach them. But I was wrong. La 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 Esther searched all day for Gorin, but couldn't find him. Under her dragon-scale solar cells, I'd created solid-state lithium-iron phosphate batteries, allowing Esther to charge from the sun and store her solar power for use at night. With her batteries fully charged, Esther continued her search at night. 
With King Maxwell dead, young Prince Maxwell had ascended the throne. When the war started, the prince had used his voice on social media channels to defend the dragons. He vowed that dragons would live with humans in peace when he became king. He was as good as his word. But after he ascended the throne, Goran and the Red Knight Brigade refused to stand down. To his followers, Goran promised that he would slay all dragons, and then he would slay Maxwell II, and then he would become king. At night, Goran and his dragon marauders would emerge from their hiding spots and patiently wait for Esther and her dragons to fly over. And that is how the last battle began. Goran saw Esther circling a power station and fired a millennium harpoon at Esther's solar cell chest. To his shock, Goran saw the harpoon bounce off of Esther's chest. When Goran fired it, he had revealed himself to her. Seeing Goran clearly now, Esther swooped down to sear him to a medium rare. Others in the Red Knight Brigade fired their harpoons at Esther. She used her solar laser power to target the visor slits in their millennium-armored helmets. When her laser beam hit the eye sockets, their eyes exploded like popped poached eggs. But they weren't dead, just blind. In pain, the Knight Brigade took off their millennium visors. With their heads now completely unprotected, Esther opened her mouth and a laser beam pierced their heads, boiling them until they exploded. Now with her technique perfected, she made quick work of thirty of the Red Knight Brigade while Goran stayed hidden. Seeing Esther distracted by laser frying his men, Goran reloaded his Millennium Harpoon cannon and fired again. It was a good shot. The harpoon pierced Esther's right wing. Esther dipped in the air, but she kept flying erratically. Then she lost control, her left wing struggling to keep her balance without the right. Before she could find the source of the harpoon, another one pierced her left wing. In pain, Esther turned into an egg-shaped oval and tumbled through the air, falling. But with the agility of a cat, she landed upright on her two hind claws, yards away from Gorin. The Red Knight noted her strange solar cell armor that protected Esther's chest and neck. I see Zeno has perfected his solar technology, said Gorin. I'm glad your eyes can see what's plain to all, said Esther. But you won't have eyes much longer. You may kill me, said Gorin. But there are others who see with my vision. Every power plant has already been converted. People are used to fossil fuel. Your young king will see that and repent when he can't stop the blackouts. The young king has spoken the truth to my ear, Esther said. He will right the short-sightedness of his father. With solar, it will never be inexpensive or reliable. The sun doesn't shine at night. Batteries are too expensive. And don't forget the duck curve and new transmission lines, permitting. Why should Zeno invent another wheel? Why not continue with fossil fuel power? People want their inexpensive light, cold-refrigerated beer and hot jacuzzis. They want land prosperity now. Solar is a magic myth, nothing more. A myth, Gordon? Has not solar power just defeated you and your entire Red Knight Brigade? Zeno has only just invented the technology. He will scale it 
lowering its price. More energy manufacturing and installation jobs will be created. Mark me, there will be prosperity and energy from sunlight and from all the clean energy technologies that are being developed as we speak. I don't believe it. If you doubt solar power, Gorin, then you bloody well won't believe this, said Esther. She opened her maw. A laser struck across the red knight's armor. Esther told me that Gorin seemed to only feel the heat at first, and then laughed at her. You see, Esther, your solar power has done nothing. It was only when Gorin saw blood seeping down the legs of his armor that he understood that he had been split in half. Gorin's torso fell forward, and his waist fell backward. He was alive long enough to see Esther's right front claw pick up his torso, his intestines hanging down in gravity. Do you believe in solar now, Gorin? I do, Gorin said. And then he died. For once and last, I think you told the truth, Gorin. Good on you. Esther stared at Gorin's limp torso. Then, like a soft-boiled egg, she peeled open Gorin's armor using her solar laser beam. It split open, revealing Gorin's red chest. She then used her solar laser to slice off pieces of flesh while simultaneously cooking the pieces to a soft, medium-rare. Then she brought Gorin's cooked pieces back to her hatchlings for breakfast. Esther kept Gorin's severed head intact, however, when she and her fellow dragons returned power to the kingdom. She thought the cable news programs might want to have Gorin's head for a guest. And of course, being the modern media, they gave viewers warnings and then showed his decapitated head over and over again. The same image was spread over Twitterdom, TikTokdom, and Instadom. Only Facebookdom decided to ban the image, but only for social media competitive reasons. That was the end of the Second Dragon War. Esther stayed with me until her five hatchlings could fly and cast their first breath of fire. She had saved a great deal of gold and gave it all to me so that I could perfect my new photovoltaic solar panel inventions. I thanked her. Not at all. Thank you for protecting me, Zeno. Where will you go now? I asked her. After you've scaled your solar, we'll return to Makito and stay there. We may not survive what humans have done, Zeno, but humans may not either. For all our sake, I'm rooting for you. As we've not seen dragons since they've left the kingdom, I don't think they survived. As you all know, the young king was as good as his word, and so was I. We are now well underway to transitioning the kingdom to sun and wind power with new energy storage technologies. But for now, without dragons, we are still reliant on some fossil fuels. We are moving quickly, but we are short of trained clean energy workers, new transmission lines, interconnection infrastructure, and sensible kingdom-wide permitting standards. And then there's that damn duck curve. If you don't know what that is, don't concern yourself. That's a story for another time. This story has been our Luxentia energy history. As for Luxentia's future, I urge you to lend your skills to our energy transition and to pray to the gods that Luxentia's dragons creatures and flora will one day recover and that's our solar dragon story 
Despite it being set in a fairy tale world, there are lots of similarities to our real energy world. And you can see all those real world similarities in the true solar takeaways in the show notes. For example, the challenges that Zeno describes at the end of our story are very real. In the U.S. alone, we need another 700,000 new solar and clean energy workers by 2030 to meet our decarbonization goals. Also, to help solar scale, we're going to need many more transmission lines, interconnection infrastructure, and more universal permitting standards without red tape. The good news is that solar energy is now the cheapest form of energy in the world, hands down. There is no more competition on a levelized cost of energy basis. Sadly, we have our versions of Gorin and King Maxwell, who are set on their old energy ways. They're very rich and waging a public relations war on solar and other clean energy technologies. I hope you'll ignore that disinformation and misinformation and do everything you can to help quicken our solar transition. So how did I come up with this story? Jealousy. I was jealous of dragons and people watching Game of Thrones, including me, instead of writing solar stories. And then I thought, what if there were a solar-powered dragon? How could that happen? And then I realized that dragons, if they existed, could heat boilers as well as coal, gas, or oil. But at what cost? The rest just came as I was developing the Luxenshire world and a war with dragons. If you're enjoying Probably True Solar Stories, the most important thing you can do to support the show is to share these episodes with friends and family interested in solar, clean energy, audiobooks, and especially those thinking about transitioning their careers to solar. The Red Knight and the Dawn of the Solar Dragon was written and read by me, Tor, Solar Fred, Valenza. Probably True Solar Stories is a production of Unthink Solar, PR, and Communications. Be bold for solar. Stand out and educate.